What is crackalacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host, Adam Frommel. As noted in the previous podcast, uh, this is a two-mailbag week um, due to technical difficulties slash my travel schedule. So we'll dive right into the second part of this mailbag. I have a, a ton of great questions to get through once more. If you missed the first one, had a lot of fun with that. Be sure to check that out. It went live on Wednesday. This one is going live on a Friday. Before we get started, though, as usual, please, please, pretty please, with sugar on top, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knox wherever you are getting your podcasts. Download every episode. Tell your friends, family members, acquaintances, randos on the street, social media, friends, family, people, frenemies, whatever. I don't even know the lingo. Whether you use iTunes or not, we also ask that you head over there, search Hardwood Knox, and throw us a five-star rating and write a review. That helps us out a ton, as does following our YouTube channel, youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We will come up, subscribe, watch our videos. Sometimes we'll have exclusives once the NBA gets a little busier, of course, and we break down a lot of clips from these podcasts on there as well. You can also follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Instagram is at Hardwood underscore Knox, and TikTok is at Hardwood Knox. You guessed it. Without further delay, though, let's just dive right into this mailbag. So this first question comes from OG Kwan Kenobi. Asks, what does OG Ananobi got to do to make an all-defensive team? In 2020, the Raptors had a top three defense, but apparently we had too many good defenders to be considered. In 2021, he missed too many games to be considered for the award, even though he played more minutes than Tybal. So I had OG Ananobi on my mock all-defense team. And when you're, you know, when you want to look at minutes played, I think that's fine for some awards, especially when you're trying to split hairs with MVP. I don't worry about the differential as much when you're looking at uh, all defense, maybe all rookie, even all NBA a little bit. At the same time, OG Ananobi might be the best on-ball defender in the NBA right now. And the Raptors had him everywhere. There were just lineups where he would defend fives, even though Pascal Siakam was on the court. And he's so important to what the Raptors do. He's not going to have the typical counting stats as a lot of other guys. And I feel like there's not as much necessarily flash to his defense as there is a Matisse Thibel, where there's like a lot of just more motion there. OG Ananobi is so strong and he's, he's long and he's, he's super smart. Not that Thibel isn't. So I think that goes into it. Um, I think what OG Wan Kenobi brought up a great point of is when you're on a team that has so many good defenders, though, it dilutes conceptually your impact and it's maybe why a Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons when you're looking at them in the defensive player of the year race um, yes they'll be mentioned but can you imagine either one of those two players winning it while the other one is on the team I'm not saying they won't it just feels like it's a little bit more difficult sort of like the two MVP is on your team where it's like Kevin Durant or James Harden how are we going to distinguish discern between them and Kyrie's on that team as well moving forward that's not a perfect answer, of course, because defense is a lot different and you're just looking at the scope of OG Ananobi's assignments. Um, OG Ananobi is going to make it, you know, an all-defensive team. It's just, it's going to happen. And I would argue that he will have some first-team all-defense selections under his belt before his career is even close to, to over. So, um, and OG, OG Juan Kenobi also mentioned that he never understood how Toronto having too many good defenders um, ball defense position is seen as a slight against OG in 2020, but in 2021, and Bede Simmons and Thibault can all make it. That's that's also a great point um, that I wanted to touch on as well. So there's, you know, I think there, like I said, 
Tybal's game, there feels like there's a little bit more flash to the defense. Um, I also think people, voters, are going to look at teams that were really good, and the Raptors kind of – they didn't kind of. They definitely underachieved last year. They had the COVID issues. They have the injury issues. And then, you know, for a third of the season, they just flat out weren't trying to win. And I think that goes into it as well, that voters like to single out guys that are going to be on good teams. That is certainly just not always the case, but I do think that's part of it. To me, though, he deserved to make it, but you also get to a point where you are splitting hairs. I wouldn't use the minutes discrepancy. I think it was 500 and change last time I checked. I meant to pull that up among all the windows that I have open right now. It's not. So, yeah, I, he's he's an all-defense guy to me. I wouldn't even take it as a slight. It's just there's only two teams for that, and it's so hard to quantify and even qualitatively measure defense just as observers, as media members, because most of us and throwing myself in there who does not have a vote to be clear. So we just don't have a lot like the defensive knowledge as coaches or even, you know, as certain other media analysts have, I would argue they definitely need to sort of thin out the voting pool here. And maybe that makes a bigger difference, but yeah, I'm not too, I just don't read too much into it. It's sort of a nice award to get, but to me, it doesn't take away anything from, what OG Ananobi does. And he's going to be just a sleeper, most improved player pick this year, because I think he gets more ball control on offense, given the structure of the Raptors right now. And if he's going to shine on defense as much as he just typically does, and this is just someone who could shut down people one-on-one, not everybody, but this is a five position defender when you look at him and he had, he can play make. I'm not trying to take that away from him by saying that Tybal's just flashier. There's just like more, I don't know. There's more body mechanics, like, flamboyant body mechanics involved and maybe that means people feel his defense more or perhaps it's just talked about more when you're talking when you're looking at the nba in general there are just more teams you know in the united states and the raptors just don't seem to generate as much national coverage and i I don't want to ascribe blame to that but i think the season the raptors had versus the season the sixers had that was probably the bigger difference more so than some you know perceived slight against the Raptors. I don't think there's an agenda there, but it's still a great question. I think you you deserve to make it. Uh, Keurig is bad Asks Hi. Hello. What is the max offensive rating ever achieved by a team in the postseason? The reason I asked is because I'm curious to think about ceilings on offense efficiency for the Nets. So I'm on the record of saying I like to use adjusted offensive ratings rather than raw offensive ratings. We can say that you know, the Mavericks had the best offense in, in history one year, but what is it relative to the league average? Um, this was harder to look up for the playoffs, so I am just using raw offensive rating here, but I just want people to know it's imperfect. I do find the results, uh, they're, they're not surprising in the sense that the top four teams uh, all come in the past two seasons, but it's funny that the Jazz have the numbers one and two spots. The 2019-2020 Jazz um, had a 123.3 offensive rating through seven games in the playoffs. And then the 2020-2021 Jazz, through 11 games, had a 122.6 offensive rating, which is the second highest on record per stat head. The 2020-2021 Portland Trailblazers check in at three with 122.1. The 2020-2021 Clippers check in at four through 19 games, which is super impressive, at 121.5. And then this is shouldn't be surprising at all, but the 2016-2017 Team Cleveland Cavaliers. That team was just so fantastic on offense. And obviously you lose sight of what they did a little bit. And maybe you shouldn't because the Warriors existed with with Kevin Durant, but they had a 120.7 offensive rating, which is the fifth highest on record. If you set a benchmark of having to play at least 10 games in the playoffs, the number one mark would be this season's Jazz at 122.6. Then you would have the 2020-2021 Clippers at 121.5. 
those cat that Cavs team in 2016, 2017, 120.7. Then you get two um two teams that are less recent in the 86, 87 Lakers, 120.3. And then the 1983-1984 Utah Jazz, 119.5. Uh, really hysterical that the, the Jazz just appear on this list in the top 10 of the raw offensive rating so often. If anyone's wondering where the Kevin Durant-era Warriors fall, um, the 2016-2017 Warriors, that team, which was just lost one game the entire playoff run, 119.4 offensive rating through their 17 playoff games and Brooklyn. If you go through this, this season's Brooklyn team, uh, they finished 21st, uh, 117.1. Do they have the potential to beat it? I would say, I want to say yes, but when you also are going to rely probably on a lot more one-on-one basketball, even though you look at how the three stars have played together and coalesced, there was ball movement. They did play off one another. I'm just wondering if that's a, a little bit harder to do, which is why even the 2016, 2017 Warriors, yeah, they're, they're eighth, but they're not like, and I'm not saying they were a ball stopping team. They weren't necessarily, but when you have so many centric figure, central figures in your offense, does almost make it more difficult to achieve these, these offensive ratings where you look at the jazz um, success by committee or in Portland, where it's really just Dame centric and then everybody else. Uh, that might be a flawed argument just because this year's Clipper, although look this year's Clippers showing up like Kawhi missing so much time. So it was Paul George. And then, the, the committee around him, just something to, to sort of think about there. Next question we will move on to is too tall. Tony asks, what should the rocket starting five look like? According to analytics, this is so according to analytics, you really can't do it too much because there's just been so much turnover on this team. So I kind of fucked around with a bunch of different four man combinations to see how I could, you know, of, of incumbent players and see how you could round it out there. So what I came up with here is John Wall, Daniel House, Christian Wood, and Jay Sean Tate, they had a net rating of plus 13.6 last year and about 170 non-garbage time possessions per cleaning the glass. That is one, no time at all. But again, if you wanted to use incumbent rocket players, the samples are just inherently small given the turnover. Also injuries to guys like John Wall, Christian Wood missed time, Daniel House missed a bunch of time. So you would start with those four if you want to do this analytically. And I think you just round this out with, you know, maybe Eric Gordon might actually be the best player left, but it has to be Jalen Green. Uh, and not just given what you saw from him this summer league, but like that, you have so much just future equity invested in that dude. Their actual starting lineup this season, I'm not going to claim to have a feel for it. I think it ends up being something like John Wall, Kevin Porter Jr., Jalen Green, Jay, Jay Sean Tate, and Christian Wood. So it actually is probably kind of close to that, I don't know if they would consider, like, do we want Jayshon Tate coming off the bench and maybe we'll just start Alperen Shangun? I don't think you would want two rookies in the starting lineup, and I'm just going to assume that Jalen Green uh, will be in the starting lineup. Maybe bring Kevin Porter off the bench as sort of that microwave sixth man, and then you start Eric Gordon, but you might even just view Eric Gordon as that microwave sixth man. Uh, if there was a sixth player that was going to crack this group, so I have Wall, Porter Jr., Jalen Green, Tate, and Wood as my projected starting five, uh, which is again very close to what it would be if you were going, you know, by analytics last year. You would simply just be um, taking out Kevin Porter Jr. and putting in Daniel House there. I think it would probably be Daniel House that would be the most likely to actually crack the the starting lineup if we think that Kevin Porter Jr. isn't going to be there. I just I can't see them starting a second rookie, although maybe they should. Like just Usman Garuba, Alperin Shangun. 
those guys probably need to see some minutes at the same position with the four. You also have Jayshon Tate, who should probably play some four. Uh, so maybe they're just worried about logjam there. But you also have some minutes where you could slot people up at the five because you have Wood and Daniel Tice and just not many other bodies there. But if you're looking to, you know, you're worried, let's say you're just worried a little bit about uh, Jayshon Tate, Shangun, and, and Usman Garuba, that could factor in. They also have Josh Christopher floating around here. He had some high moments in the summer league. But to cap that off, the analytics say, just based off the way that I use it, I was trying to look for, and by the way, like the 169 possession sample size I was using for those four of John Wall, Daniel House, Christian Wood, and Jason Tate, it was just among the highest of their four-man combinations. So I have those four, and then you would just throw Jalen Green in there. Um, if you were really catering to analytics, maybe you go with Eric Gordon, just the more proven player. I would expect this to be a, a John Wall Jalen Green, Jay Sean Tate, Christian Wood, then Kevin Porter Jr. situation. I don't feel comfortable about that last spot. It could go to Daniel House, Eric, Eric Gordon. Um, you might even be able to make a case for David Nwaba in there, but I think you need more shooting with more proven shooting within that, that lineup, certainly, which is why Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green might maybe play together. And that's a lot of just creation wrapped into one starting five. Let's move on to another. That was a fascinating question, by the way. Uh, let's move on to this next question. Uh, Lee M asks, how does the Bucks offseason pickups look after not re-signing PJ Tucker? I'm not sure if I'm being trolled here because I eviscerated the Bucks for not bringing back PJ Tucker in what was clearly still a penny-pinching move. Um, and if you are trolling me, that's that's totally fine. I'm not offended. They did make their offseason end up being better than I expected given what happened there. Um, you did keep Bobby Portis, which was important. You did bring back George Hill. And the last time George Hill was good was in Milwaukee. The Grayson Allen trade was kind of sneaky. Someone who can shoot the three ball, give you a little bit extra ball handling. And then it, you're just inoculated against, okay, when's Dante DiVincenzo coming back? They're not similar players, especially on defense. DiVincenzo is going to give you a lot more there. But Grayson Allen is more of a proven guy with the ball in his hands and shooter than a Pat Connaughton, if you're looking for that type of look. And then DiVincenzo is going to be a restricted free agent next year so if he's too so will grayson allen i believe actually so if donna divincenzo is too expensive kind of hedge your bets with the grayson grayson allen there so i liked that um shemmy Oljale, kind of whatever like is that your pj tucker replacement because you might be able to play him next to those or within those Giannis at the five lineups or where Giannis really isn't the five but he's your biggest player on the court however you want to frame that i like the rodney hood flyer just i'm going to give you a little bit more creation juice and can hit spot up threes Always is kind of underachieved defensively. He's not super long for his size, but this is someone who stands 6'8". Maybe he'll be better in Milwaukee's system when you're playing next to Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, and Giannis, especially all at once. If you have him on the court there, I don't know if that's maybe too small for the Bucs, but if they wanted to play Rodney Hood as your with Middleton and like sort of interchangeable to 3-4 with Drew Holiday and Dante DiVincenzo, I'd be there for that. So I think the Bucs offseason overall, it looks it looks fine, but you had the ability to keep PJ Tucker. And I don't know why you wouldn't have, maybe you just assume that his offensive decline was going to continue a great deal. He shot under 32% on corner threes in the playoffs. There were moments where it felt like he wasn't providing enough defensive value to even, um, excuse me, defensive value to offset the offensive value that he was taking away from you at the same time. Like that dude can really defend. It's, it's basically all five positions. We saw him like he, he'll give you a real effort against Kevin Durant. Not going to shut him down, but the fact that he could still, do that. I think you miss him. And if you're going to flesh out lineups where Giannis Antetokounmpo is your biggest player, I I think you would rather have PJ Tucker than a Shemi Oljale or a Rodney Hood involved there. And maybe you're able to get by, or maybe you just become more dependent on Giannis playing next to Portis or Lopez. I think that gives you real problems in certain matchups where if you're going against Brooklyn and they decide to downsize, 
Um, let's say you're going against Miami and Bam Adebayo is their five, and you know they have PJ Tucker on the court with him. Also, if you want to mismatch against Philly um, and make life more difficult on Joel Embiid, uh, I, I think PJ Tucker could have came in handy there. Just you know having Giannis your de facto five there that puts a lot of pressure on Joel Embiid. Maybe it doesn't matter if Ben Simmons is still there. I don't think it's crippling to lose PJ Tucker, but they should have just kept him. And look, they're they're in the tax as of right now, so. I'm not they're they're obviously still willing to pay to keep this team together, but let's one see how that sort of shakes out by the end of the season. Uh, but also, I just I'm not saying PG Tucker is going to be the difference between between a repeat bid and them getting bounced in the first or second round, but you had the ability to keep him. It seems like he wanted to stay based off that Instagram post. How much money was did the Miami Heat give him that you weren't prepared? to do that or maybe you didn't want to put the second year on his contract. I really I have no idea. I still would have kept him. Uh, but too tall, Tony, um, this, excuse me, but Lee, I think the Bucks off season, you know, if you're grading it and we are going to give out report card grades, I need to dig a little bit deeper into this. I think you could give them a B or a C plus in the sense that did they exceed expectations? No. Did they miss them or actively damage their chances at repeating? I would say no. So I just don't, I don't view it as a great off season, but I think that they made some really nice moves on the margins. They just, it would have been a home run if this is the off season you have. And, and PJ Tucker is there another question. Let's go to <laughs> not going to answer that question, but it is making me laugh. So we have some, uh, Frankie Okina questions. So I'm just going to answer them quickly. Alex Emery asks, who would you rather take a chance on Frank or Dante Exum? I, I think it's Frankie Okina for me. He's proven he could stay healthier in the sense that he's getting more DMPs where Dante Exum is just sort of um, been banged up. It feels like his entire career. And Frankie Okina has shown a little bit more over the last season and a half as a three-point shooter. I think Frankie Okina's best role is as a 3 and D wing. He's just never been deployed that way consistently. Um, maybe people like the fact that Exum might give you a little bit more ball handling and they've seen him go up against James Harden and, you know, hang tight in that battle. But Franklin Lokina has done similar things. I would rather take a flyer on him, but I'm probably the, the wrong person to ask there. Uh, the other Frank question we had was from Meyer Rothbaum. Was Neil Lokina's limited playing time in the Olympics proof that he's not going to be a longtime NBA player? I say no, but again, maybe the wrong question here. Uh, I just, I, he needs to be signed. Maybe he'll be signed by the time you listen to this. I don't know. I'm just... I'm actually shocked that a lot of other players are signed. Uh, you know, Paul Millsap, the whole Larry marketing stuff going on right now, just absolutely bizarre. Let's stick with the Knicks here. Um, Noah Odage asks, why does the NBA media hate RJ Barrett? I'm assuming he's mostly kidding here, or it's a response to the athletics tier rankings. Um, Seth Part now, who I, I do really like, I believe what was going around was he had to defend having Alex Caruso um, ahead of <coughs> RJ Barrett. I don't want to get into the day what like the logic behind that. Um, I don't know that the NBA media hates RJ Barrett, but I got asked this question on Twitter too. And when I was, I wrote a piece about the, my most underrated player in every NBA team. And some people want to know why I didn't pick RJ Barrett for the Knicks. I think, I guess based off the people I've talked to that are outside the Knicks stratosphere, I feel like he's properly rated where it's like, Oh, okay. He shot over 40% from three and he, um, and, and he defended really well last year it's and he, you know he showed some flashes as a passer too to me as well but is the dribble jumper is just going to be the swing skill for him that's what kind of is the barrier between him and you know a stardom course and maybe people just haven't seen enough to believe that's 
that's going to happen. Uh, to his credit, you know, if you look at the sophomores, and I sorted this by just their second season or their first season, NBA players to qualify for the minutes per game leaderboard and then average at least 17 points while shooting better, um, average at least 17 points and three assists while shooting better than 40% from three. It's only happened seven times on record. RJ Barrett is one of them. Stephen Curry has two of these seasons as a rookie uh, and a sophomore. Bradley Beal is on this list. Vince Carter is on this list. Hersey Hawkins is on this list. And so is Larry Bird. That's pretty good company. And both RJ and Beal were the two youngest players to do it. They both did it before their age 21 seasons. So I don't know. I don't think he's going to turn into any of these players. Um, I mean, you probably hope he has a better uh, trajectory than Hawkins, who made one all-star appearance for his career. But like that's encouraging. And I'm just curious to see what type of role he's going to have this season on a Knicks team that really revamped their offensive pecking order, where now it's not Julius Randle, all everything. You have Evan Fournier, who can do stuff with the ball. You have Kemba Walker. You brought back Derek Rose. You brought back Alec Burks, another guy who can create his own shot. And so does that sort of pigeonhole RJ Barrett into the three and D type of function, just because I don't know in what lineups he's going to be able to branch out offensively, uh, perhaps bench heavy units where it's him just plus the bench, or at least you have him and then Kemba and Randall are on the pond. But even then you're still dealing with, okay, Rose quickly might be in there. He's going to need some touches too. And Alec Burks, like I said, I'm just curious to see whether he's going to have the opportunity to broaden his offensive skill set. He, he needs to work on that, that pull-up jumper. And we've seen like, he can put the ball on the deck and really get physical and go to the rim. Uh, but to be a super elite player in this league, there needs to be that layer of perimeter self-creation that we have yet to see from him. Part of that is the Knicks haven't necessarily needed him to do that. And they need him to do it even less next season. The thing that's really interesting with RJ Barrett is they've kind of decide decided, and I get, look, I've kind of, made a stink about them not bringing back Reggie Bullock because he was their most important perimeter defender. It does feel like the Knicks have made a conscious decision of we want shot creators. It's, you know, maybe Kemba Walker fell into the lap, but even before then bringing back Derek Rose and then bringing back Alec Burks and getting Evan Fournier, where I think you could have viewed it as, okay, well, if you were going to be in the mix for Evan Fournier, why bring, bring back Reggie? Why not? Why bring back Alec Burks instead of Reggie Bullock? But now, okay. So you look at this and I guess RJ Barrett is going to get like some of the toughest, uh, the toughest assignments this season outside of point guard. I don't think they'll stash him on those types, but like Evan Fournier, like maybe he'll be announced as the starting three, but like he's not defending. If the, you know, RJ Barrett between the two and the three in the starting lineup, he's going to be defending the the tougher covers there. And unless you believe that like a Miles McBride or a Quentin Grimes as rookies are going to step in and be the Knicks' best defender, perimeter defender. Anyway, like RJ Barrett is the single most important perimeter defender on the New York Knicks right now. That's kind of wild to say, just based off what we saw from him as a rookie. And the, yeah, there was improvement, especially away from the ball as a sophomore, but that's putting a lot of faith in him. And I'm interested to see how it turns out. Of course, you can argue that both Nerlens Noel and Mitchell Robinson are better defensively than him. They're on the back line, though. Like RJ Barrett is going to be just the primary wing defender, it feels like. And so I'm very interested to, to sort of, watch that process unfold. I don't have a feel for how it's going to turn out. Let's wrap up with another Knicks question. Uh, this one comes from Fred. Do the Knicks have a solid shot at the Eastern Conference's best of the rest? Milwaukee, Philly, and the Brooklyn Nets securing the top three spots in all likelihood. 
Um, so he's asking about the fourth playoff seed. They, you know, what is solid? I just, you know, when you're looking at the East pecking order, I think they're in that mix. It's the Knicks, the Hawks, the Heat, the Celtics, and the Pacers to me right now. I'll be inclined to throw the Raptors in there. I don't know what to feel about the Bulls. That's seven teams that I think could justifiably be in there. And that's assuming that Washington or Charlotte doesn't sneak their way in there. There's going to be razor thin margins outside the top three in the East. And maybe it's even outside the top two. Just I, I we don't know what Philly's going to look like, how Ben Simmons is going to play if if he is still still there. I think if I had to pick, I think Miami or Atlanta, both of them to me have a leg up on the Knicks. After that, I might be inclined to go with a fully healthy Pacers squad, maybe even the the Boston Celtics at this point. Um my spicy take could be that if the Raptors stay together, that they'll have a better regular season record than the Knicks. But I honestly don't know. That's just not an insult. If you told me, you could tell me the Knicks finished fourth in the East next year, I believe you. You could tell me that the Knicks finished 10th, and I'd also believe you because that's how thin the gap is going to be through all those teams there. And I think it's important to remember when looking at the Knicks. Yeah, you do have to view it through the prison of, okay, they did spend some long-term money here. Don't buy into the fact that they're better set up to pull off a trade. They've just decided that they're going to get a star via trade rather than free agency, which is a fine decision because they're choosing to remain competitive while they perhaps wait for that deal to materialize. But just because they have these guys on multi-year deals, two years guaranteed, and Evan Fournier's case is three years guaranteed, like they're not better set up to trade for a star like cap space and flexibility is just as valuable in those scenarios, but they, they did invest money in being good. It was just, most of it was low risk. I would say the Evan Fournier deal is the one that just felt like it went a touch too far. If you're even going to give them three guaranteed years, that price point have to be as high from the team's perspective. Um, Lost my train of thought from what I was arguing, but Oh, growth isn't linear. And so the Knicks won 57% of their games last season. And so that's a, that's a 72 game season. I don't think you need to look at this and say, okay, well, if they don't win 47 games next year over the course of an 82 game season or more, it's a failure. They've regressed just because the East is going to be deeper and better depending on how healthy it is. Uh, so anything can happen there. And that's going to be something to render. If they, they could technically win 40 games and maybe have just shown a bunch of improvement. Maybe RJ Barrett hits. It looks like they found stuff in Quentin Grimes and Deuce McBride. Um, Emmanuel quickly makes a jump as a facilitator. And just as importantly, maybe Julius Randle has a great follow-up campaign to what he did um, last season, because that's a guy who, you know, and this could be the answer to a, another question, which is funny, from James Ciaputo. What's the biggest improvement in a player you've seen in the NBA can be a certain skill or overall jump? Uh, Julius Randle just going from, you no. Know, not out of nowhere, but to second team, all NBA, um, that's a huge leap. And so if he is even close to as good as he was last season, but you win fewer games, that's still huge because it means that that contract that he signed um, four years up to 117 million, it could end up just being closer, like four and a hundred, 105 as the base that could really mean like, that means big things because then you have him on a below market deal. Um, so yeah, it's important at the Knicks, I think, to go beyond the record and look at the performance of their individual players. Um, but I would not pick them as I would have both the Heat and the Hawks right now in front of the Knicks. And a lot of things could change that, health factors being among them. And the Knicks might fall victims to that, like Kemba's knees. Derek Rose is always hurt. They got really lucky with RJ Barrett and Julius Randle's durability last season. So there's a lot that goes into that. To further answer James's question about a player. 
um, or maybe a skill that I've really seen from the jump. You know, I immediately look towards Pascal Siakam winning most improved player in 2018, 2019. A lot of people thought he had a down year last season. I think he was still pretty good, even though the jump shot left him. Just that all-around skill set, when you just look at how much of a niche role he was playing upon entering the NBA, um, maybe it was more of a it – was, it was kind of a gradual progression functionally. Um, the makeup of the team changed, going from Kyle Lowry to Marta Rosen, having Kawhi there to not having Kawhi there. But it was just like these mega leaps from him. And to see that happen multiple times and then to have a season where he shoots so well from three, even though that was you know two seasons really where he's shooting fairly well from three when this was a guy that coming in, you didn't think could shoot. Uh, that's like, that's absolutely wild. And I don't I want to stay on the Knicks with this one, but having Julius Randall, like make the jump to second team on NBA at the age of like his age 26 season. Um, that's, we just don't see that type of lead from a guy who was like barely in his best season. When you look at, the year he uh, had in New Orleans was like maybe a fringe all-star. So that's really just um, those two stand out to me more recently. Um, <laughs> laughing at this one from Miroslav Shook, longtime listener, who's a better defender, Michael Porter Jr. or Damian Lillard. Uh, that is obviously funny, but it's Michael Porter Jr. And I actually think he improved on defense, by the way, just like what the plays he can make as a helper. Um, this is someone who can actually do some damage. So I don't think he's going to be a great defender, but just something to keep in mind. Um, at Bird Untruster asks, do you buy the Lonzo Ball brand theory? Is Lonzo going to have a career-high shooting season with the league changing from Spalding to Wilson? I don't buy into this theory. I think it's an actual funny question. Lonzo kind of fixed his jumper, even if the form still looks wonky. When you look at the mechanics of it, the speed of it, Lonzo Ball is a good jump shooter now. We just we have off the catch. He's not hitting these off the dribble triples. That would be ideally the next phase of his development. But that's sort of what you're you're waiting on from him. Um, but I think he's just reworked his his jump shot more than uh, more than anything else. So no, I don't buy into that theory. Pained Psy asks, who is the most average player at every position? Uh, so I decided to do this by looking at VORP and seeing guys who qualified for the minutes per leaderboard and basically had an average VORP. Um, and then I built it by backcourt, um, forwards, and bigs to look at it. So you have your, in the backcourt, you have Kelvin Johnson and Shake Milton. Your wings are Josh Richardson and Will Barton. And then your center would be Dwight Howard. That was looking at just last season. Um, I didn't want to have to put a thought into like who would be the most average player in the, the NBA. Um, Jermichael Green came awfully close to, to making this list, by the way. It's because both Barton and Richardson qualified as threes, so Green could have almost made that front court as well. I would argue Jermichael Green is decidedly above average. So last season, by, by, by VORP, um, those were your most, most average players. Have a few more questions here. Let's let's see if we can tear through them. We actually have a bunch more questions here, but it doesn't look like I'm going to get through. Oh, this one's great from Anion Sports. Which team would you pick to overachieve, and which one would you pick to underachieve in the upcoming season? Probably based off everything that's happened over the off season. Um, I think a lot of people are going to gravitate to the Pelicans in some form here. I don't know if you can necessarily pick them to underachieve because. I don't think you look at their offseason and think that, oh, this is a team that thought it got better. So, yeah, my overachiever would be Toronto. A lot of people are talking about, oh, will they trade Siakam? Could Van Fleet find his way onto the 
the trade block. What are they going to do for shot creation outside of Fred Van Fleet, even Pascal Siakam? Can OG handle that role? Is Scotty Barnes going to get a chance? Should they have paid Gary Trent Jr.? Is the big man rotation still a little wonky because you have Chris Boucher and Ken Birch and Precious Achua? Like, what is what does all that look like? How are you going to be on Utah Watanabe? This is a team I would expect if the makeup stays the same that is going to have easily a top seven defense. And then there's there's more offense to plumb there than people are giving them credit for, so long as they have Goran Dragic. That's sort of the wild card there. But this is a team that, no, I wouldn't pick them to come out of the East. But as a regular season team, if you told me the Raptors finished fourth or fifth, that wouldn't shock me. If they're healthy, they're a team that's going to win a lot of regular season games. When you're looking at underachievers, I think it's the Chicago Bulls. You could also maybe think about the Lakers here. Uh, just how combustible is the Russell Westbrook situation, but I'm, I can't bet against LeBron James ever. I liked Chicago's offseason right up until the DeMar DeRozan move. And I think DeMar DeRozan is still a really good basketball player and that people conflate a player's value too much uh, with his, his pay grade. Um, the fit there is just weird. And I, I'm, what is their defense going to look like? They should have a really good offense, but then again, is there going to be too much, you know, usage cannibalization between Zach Levine, Nikola Vucevic, and DeMar DeRozan. I would probably argue no, just because of the way Levine and Vuce can play off the ball. But Kobe White's sort of involved in that mix. What does the best defensive lineup look like? I'm assuming it's with Caruso and Patrick Williams. How do you flesh the rest of that out? Are those two closing? And then you just go with Levine, DeMar DeRozan, and Vuce? I don't know that I love that lineup. There's not a ton of shooting there when you really think about it. Vooch and Levine would be the best shooters. DeRozan doesn't shoot threes. Caruso is so-so. Patrick Williams hit a decent clip of his threes last year as a rookie, but he's going to have to really nudge that up. Um, so, yeah, Chicago just seems very, very combustible. Um, and if there was another team I had to pick as just an underachiever, uh, I'll, I'll go to the Western Conference here just for the sake of not focusing only on the East. Probably Portland. Just, I think people look at them even without making changes as just sort of penciling them in as a playoff team. I don't know that you can do that. If we're looking at which of the top six teams are going to fall out, I'm not picking the Jazz, the Suns, or even the Nuggets without Jamal Murray. Um, Dallas, I guess because they still have limited shot creation around Luka, maybe that's interesting. The Clippers without Kawhi, maybe that's interesting. But it could be Portland. It just could, like, what did they do? How much, what did they do to improve the defense? Like, Cody Zeller isn't helping that. Ben McLemore isn't helping that. So uh, it's if Yusuf Nurkic is healthy and they keep CJ McCollum and Damian and Damian Lillard stays throughout the season, which my guess would be that he would. I'd be shocked if he requested trade midstream. And then Norman Powell has just an encore to what he did last year. I yeah, they should be a solid playoff team, but like the Lakers are going to be in the top six next year. I would be shocked if that didn't happen. So one of the teams is getting bumped. And I think you could I might pencil in the Warriors as a top six team, in which in which case it's two teams getting bumped. So Portland is a team where they've invested a lot or they're banking a lot on their current core, thinking that they're good enough to at least be that. Uh, and there's a chance to me that, that they just aren't. So um, yeah, if, if you're looking for a West overachiever, that's a tough one. I don't know if I can really think of one in that conference. Um, I, I don't have one. I honestly don't like maybe just the Grizzlies because they've so pivoted out of winning now. And yet maybe they'll stumble into a play in birth anyway. Uh, I don't think it's really going to be the Timberwolves, even if they're super healthy. Oklahoma City is going to do their damnedest not to win 20 games next year. Maybe Houston, just like if they keep this core together and the some of the rookies are good right away. I mean, just between Josh Christopher, Usman Garuba, um, Alperin Shangun, and of course, Jalen Green. Like, let's say Jalen Green is rookie of the year. 
candidate, like one of the top two rookie of the year candidates, which is obviously not that far fresh of an idea. He was taking number two overall, but let, let's say he's in that combo decidedly. Um, John Wall stays healthy all year. Um, Christian Wood as a follow-up to what he was doing last season. Jay Sean Tate looks as good as he, he did last year. Daniel House is healthier and playing ditto for Eric Gordon. My guess would still be that the Rockets would trade out of anything that plays them toward the middle because they're one of like four or five teams right now that don't seem like they're actively trying to win. Uh, but if you get Jalen Green and let's say like Garuba or Alperun Shangun to be really good right off the bat, you have something there. If you're signing Daniel Tice, just a, a rock solid player, backup point guard could definitely get a little iffy. Like, are you trusting DJ Augustine? I mean, you could maybe even go with Josh Christopher there for a little bit. Do you trust Jalen Green to do it? Probably view more of his wing in that situation, but I'm going to go with the Rockets. They would be the biggest overachiever to me in the Western Conference. I'm not going to predict it, but that's if there's a team that just shocks us in the West. They're just so much better than we expected. I don't. It's not going to be at the top. It's going to be from the the Houston Rockets. You you heard it here first, please, and so please remember it. Let's make this the last question from Let's Not Go to Camelot. The Warriors have a couple spots open towards the back of their roster and an open two way. Who do you think they should drop and pick up in, in what remains of free agency? Um, I don't want to get into necessarily who they should drop. I don't really get a feel for like what they want to do with the final spots of their roster. Um, it doesn't seem like, unless it was going to be for Patty Mills, that they want to uh, trade uh, to pay out the mini level exception. And right now, there's not really players who are are worth that. Um, my guess would be if they're going to cut someone. Gary Payton, the second would be the guy that goes. It does seem like they're going to give him a chance there. Maybe it's, it's Michael Mulder. Um, I honestly don't know. Looking at the free agents, they could still pick up. I think Paul Millsap is a great fit there just as a big who can, if you want him to be your five, essentially just be like the Draymond green, Paul Millsap front court, I think could be really good defensively despite its lack of size. Maybe even Paul Millsap and Juan Toscano Anderson in certain matchups. I don't think he could be low key important to maximizing James Wiseman. Um, he just needs someone at the four who can dot the arc and Millsap has shot fairly well in catch and shoot threes over the past few years. Having him on the outside would then allow you to let James Wiseman work as the roller. It's harder to do that with Draymond Green on a court, even if Green is the ball handler because he's, he's not a threat from the outside. So Paul Millsap would be super ideal for them. Um, I don't hate the idea. It does seem like they might be set on wing depth, but how much do you trust Moses Moody, Jonathan Kaminga right off the bat? And Otto Porter's been more down than up over the past couple of seasons. James Ennis could be a nice fit there. A stab in the dark type of player, just to look at this team still needs someone who could put the ball on the floor, generate his own shot, and just light it up from outside. Is J.J. Redick healthy? Um, not like the quintessential guy to knock down, to, to just work in isolation, but like he can hit pull-up threes. And he's rated in the 95th percentile or better of scoring scoring efficiency as the ball handler in the pick and roll each of the past four seasons. So it's not a huge part of his game, initiating pick and rolls, but to be in the 95th percentile or better in four straight seasons as he's getting older, uh, that would be a welcome addition if he's healthy to me, especially until Clay Thompson comes back. You still want that lights out sniper through Christmas. If he still prefers to land someone in the Northeast, um, a Brooklyn or a New York or a Boston that does kind of throw a wrench in your plans, but New York doesn't need another guard of his ilk. I would argue Brooklyn doesn't either after getting Patty Mills. 
Boston's like kind of iffy. Maybe they could use someone like him, but if they want to play um, Aaron Naismith and Peyton Pritchard after what they did in summer league, not so much. Philly would be the destination for Redick, but Golden State um, to me would would be just super interesting there. They could try their hand at just because when you do look at this, um, who are you banking on to be your backup point guard right now? Maybe Jordan Poole. Uh, I don't think Reddick has to throw a wrench in those plans, but if you wanted to be the team that takes a flyer on Frank Neal, just kidding, Isaiah Thomas, you could certainly do that. This mailbag was great. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, again, we will get back to non-solo pods next week. We have a lot of content coming up for you guys, so I hope you enjoyed at least these solo mailbags. I'm, I'm so happy that we still get these responses to questions. Um, you can, oh, wait, excuse me. I'm not done. I have a question in my DMs that I promised I would get to. So that's a preemptive ending. That's a t- premature ending to this podcast. But, but Steven asked, you started talking about the Grizzlies on the last episode. Do you think they could be a sleeper team in the Ben Simmons sweepstakes? They're a small market team with a ton of valuable mid-tier contracts, Dylan Brooks, Kyle Anderson, DeAnthony Melton, young players that could interest Philly either for now or to be tackled for a star. Zaire Williams, Desmond Bain, Brandon Clark, and picks. They control their entire draft along with the Lakers, Utah, and Golden State first-round picks. Um, do I? He goes into some packages. So two things here. He doesn't have Jer- – Steven doesn't have Jared Jackson Jr. going to Philly in this deal. Whether it's a three-team trade or it's just a straight-up trade with Philly, I don't think they're pulling this – you're getting this off if you're Memphis without including Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, you know, you don't need another big if you're Philly, but he can compliment Joel Embiid. He's the best young player that you have that's not named John Morant. So I would think he'd be included unless you're just giving up enough draft equity plus Desmond Bain and Zaire Williams. And even then, it's like, all right, are you rerouting a bulk of those assets to a third team that's then sending the Sixers a star? That's what I think is so complicated about a package like what Memphis could offer, even with San Antonio. You could talk yourself into there being good fits for the Sixers with players, but if they're looking for even a, a fringe star, um, you're looking at, you know, are the Spurs going to give up Murray or in Memphis' case, are they going to give up Jaron Jackson Jr.? The other thing is I don't love Ben Simmons' fit next to John Morant. He needs the ball in his hands. John Morant isn't a proven shooter yet, um, even though he did improve his three-point stroke towards the end of last season. So, yeah, a lot of just iffy things there. I don't think Memphis would be a, a contender for Ben Simmons, Stephen. That being said, based on all the assets that you listed out and it re- just the draft picks that they've accumulated beyond their own, uh, they could sneak into whatever sweepstakes that they want. I don't know who the player is necessarily. Um, probably someone under contract or is going to uh, for multiple years or who commits to resigning with them i really like zach levine in memphis people provided pushback on that i think he'd be a great fit but with his upcoming free agency do you trust him to stay they could still get in on that type of a sweepstakes or if there's an opportunity in the 2022 draft to really move up they have the package if they want to go take another swing at that co-star apple for for john moran and they're they're in a really good situation with that i like their offseason i think more than most people did even though there's like an oddball directionality to what they're doing. But yeah, overall, I wouldn't expect them to be involved in Ben Simmons. If you told me that um, Carl Anthony Towns became available, which I don't think he will, like that would be someone I could see them going after. John Morant and Carl Anthony Towns would make sweet magic together, but that's not, you know, Carl Anthony Towns is, is not available. And there's just not a lot of other young stars that are under contract for, well, it doesn't even have to be young, but just a lot of other stars on our contract that you can envision requesting a trade. They're not going to, I doubt there'd be a dark horse for Damian Miller. That would really shock me. Bradley Beal and Levine, I like both of them there, but you need commitments from them that they're going to, to stay. So 
Yeah. That will be the final question of this mailbag. Again, I, I appreciate all the responses we get to these solicitations. Mailbags are some of my favorite episodes to do because I like hearing what you guys are thinking, I like responding to your questions, want to engage with you as much, much as possible. If you ever have a random question and you're not responding to a mailbag solicitation, you can hit my DMs up at Dan for Valley. I mean, just at Heart of the Knox and at Dan for Valley, both of us to, to make sure that we see it at Frommel09 as well. Until next time, I'll leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, the somehow still unsigned, Frank Nielakina.